Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we finally leave the hilltop in mad max 2 the road warrior one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 23 which begins with wes rounding up the marauders to move on and it ends with max firing up the black on black and leaving the gyro captain at the top of the hill we pick up today with the gyro captain returning the binoculars to his face so that he can continue watching what is happening down below and we get a binocular frame of wes down amongst the raiders and he's rounding them up. Yeah. There are yeah. two raiders that are attacking Kathleen, and he swats at one of them. He, I think he tries to move the other one, but then just moves on. He's getting them ready to move. He doesn't want them just sitting here hanging around messing with these scouts. I feel like before the raiding parties were sent out to chase the scouts, they were instructed, stop them and maybe bring them to me if... Lord Humongous was thinking that far ahead of time, which he probably was. It was Lord Humongous after all. But I feel like Wes looks at the situation, says we stopped the scouts. I'm pretty sure the dudes in the makeshift tow truck have probably stripped everything important off of that buggy, and now they're ready to move. They're ready to rejoin the horde. They don't need to hang around messing with these people. Yes, that that is what happens. I don't think there's a lot of analysis that can go into that except one thing. So they all get on their bikes and they head off down the road. Now, from what I can tell, they head continuing in the direction that the buggy was going in. Further away from the compound. Further away away from the compound where are they going are they so far around that particular pinnacle that it's shorter just to keep going around the top side of that pinnacle and we just don't really see that well it could be like you said that if they need to get around to the other side of that pinnacle it's faster to just keep going up that road another idea could be maybe they have a camp further up the road because when they all left during the night they had to go somewhere and they kind of went more or less more or less in the same direction yeah i do see that it could also be that there was another scouting vehicle actually we know that there were other scouting vehicles yeah that kind of went off down in that direction so maybe they're thinking oh well we took care of this one if If there's another one that we can head off at the pass yeah rejoin a chase elsewhere okay i feel like wes has no interest in brutalizing people in this way. Wes is all about the thrill of the chase. We saw him in action in the opening chase. We saw him in action here. If anything, I feel like Wes would be disappointed with how this one went because it was over so quickly. It was. Talking about Wes, we've talked before about Wes and his relationship to power and what that means for the Golden Youth and their relationship. We hypothesized that their relationship was based on power, based on dominance and submission, whether that be sexual or not. That's what rape is about, too. Rape isn't about sex. Rape is about power. Yeah. And exerting that power over somebody else in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that Wes, you're right, he had no interest in this woman. He allowed it to happen, and in the screenplay, he actually gave 
verbal permission for them to start ripping her clothes off. Mm -hmm. But that's not how he's interested in exerting his power. Right. He has his ways. He has his golden youth. He is a leader in the horde. He exerts his power that way. It just goes to prove that everybody has power and you want to exert it at the very least over yourself mm -hmm. and everybody has different levels of power and different ways that they are good at exerting that power that's why we have bosses and why there are people who lead other people i don't want to go too deep into psychoanalyzing the rapist <laughs> but i imagine he's probably a pretty low level raider. yeah i was gonna say exerting your power in the with the method of rape is very low i mean he probably doesn't get a lot of say when they're out riding as far as what targets they pick off or mm -hmm. how he's involved with that raid. And so given the opportunity to rape this woman, he's going to take that and exert his power and feel masculine mm -hmm. about that. It makes sense to me. Yeah. And fortunate or unfortunate for him, fortunate for us, unfortunate for him, he's going to come up against someone tomorrow that is just <laughs> so much better than him. In so many ways. Yeah. And he's going to get an earful of it. Well, I, I don't know exactly which which part he's going to get uh, filled up with cr uh, bolt cutters. Head full like, in some way. Yeah. Like upside the head, maybe? Yeah. I kind of want to go back to the subject of power real quick, because I listened to an episode of a podcast, which I know we talk about podcasts all the time because both of us listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. This talk of power reminded me of the most recent episode of 99% Invisible, which I know we've mentioned that podcast a lot because it's really good. And the most recent episode, as of recording, it's called The Great Dismal Swamp. Part of the story is about this huge swamp down in the Virginia, North Carolina area that runaway slaves way back starting in like the 1700s I believe would go live in this huge swampy area because nobody would follow them in there and they set up these communities I believe that thousands of people were living in this swamp over a couple hundred years and it kind of they kind of dispersed once the civil war started and lots of them went and helped to fight and once the emancipation proclamation came along they went home to find newly freed family and it kind of dispersed they compared the dismal swamp and the communities of runaway slaves they compared that to the underground railroad mm -hmm. and why some people chose to live in the swamp rather than make their way north because by choosing to live in the swamp they were able to exert their own power over themselves they were able to achieve true autonomy yes i think it's what is they the said. way they put it yes because if they went north everything wasn't peaches and cream they were still freed slaves and there was still a lot of racism in the North. Just because slavery wasn't legal doesn't mean us benevolent Northerners saw black people as equals. Yeah, they it weren't slaves, like but they still had to find jobs and housing. And it was still very, very difficult. Yeah. with Always with the possibility of being caught and sent home back to the South. Right. If you run across the wrong group of people mm -hmm. and they put a bag over your head and drag you down South again. Thousands of people would stay in the swamps and build a life for themselves because that's how they could keep their power over their own lives. It was a very good episode. Back to the minute. We do love our tangents here on the Mad Max Minute. <laughs>
You know, sometimes we get minutes, and I feel like this is one of those minutes where there's a lot of time spent on things like minute 23 here, where a large chunk of the minute is spent watching Wes ride his motorcycle down the road. Yes. We get at least two <laughs> or three shots of that, and... It takes up like 30 seconds. There's not really much to say about it, because it's Wes and the Golden Youth. They're on their motorcycle. They're riding away. Riding away. And they're taking the other raiders with them. I do want to point out that the Golden Youth is holding a bat. Okay. I have a question for you there. Yeah. Is that bat for the Golden Youth to use, or is that bat for the Golden Youth to hold in case Wes needs it? Oh, yeah. It's probably to hold in case Wes needs it, because his his crossbow, his primary weapon is a ranged weapon. That just doesn't work all the time. Sometimes you need a melee weapon. Yeah, I feel like the wrist-mounted crossbow would be a good long to medium range weapon, but yeah, you've really got to have close range in the bag just in case. Just in case. I think as far as vehicle-to-vehicle combat is concerned, the tow cutter really showed how effective a good melee weapon can be at disabling a vehicle. Yes. There's that great scene that we got to see in the prologue of this movie of the tow cutter riding up alongside the Chevy, and he's got this giant, rusty-looking axe thing, and he puts that axe right through the windshield. Now, granted, the next shot they show is of Charlie from a completely different scene, completely different scenario. <laughs> yeah, they really they really kind of recut the movie into a completely different movie. Ah, yeah. Not to do too much retreading of a prior minute, but <laughs> when I think about that, I just imagine the movie that could have been... If Toe Cutter was just more bold and more angry at the police to yeah, like go after and them attack the all police out. directly. Oh, that would have been such a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as long as the Toe Cutter was still the Toe Cutter and still had like his spectacular personality and spectacular hair, it would have been a fantastic movie. And it would have been nice to see him do something other than steal a baby and then run away. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, again, back to the minute. Yep. Hey, at least we were talking about Mad Max this time. Yes, we were. After we watch the bikes take off down the road to who knows where, go back to Max. Mm -hmm. I have so many problems with this moment. So Max drops the spyglass from his face. He kind of stands up, looks to the side, presumably towards the compound, and then he brings the spyglass back up. And we do a shot looking through the spyglass where it's panning very quickly, it seems, mm -hmm. across the horizon mountains. It's kind of blurred. It's not, not great. And he eventually settles on the compound and then looks up at the road behind the compound. I hate, <laughs> I hate that they make us watch as he pans across the landscape. He pans too fast. You posited that maybe he was looking for dust trails to take stock of where Marauder vehicles were. Yeah, just... He's going really fast, though. I feel like he's it gets just... blurred. Taking a quick inventory. I think he swings around too fast. And why make us watch... Like, that's the stuff that motion sickness is made of. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that. I think it was a poor cinematography choice. I feel like if they were to recut it with a different filler shot, it would have been a better effect if instead of Max standing up, turning to his right, and then bringing the spyglass up to his face and spinning it and having us watch what he sees, what would have been nice is if we kept the shot pulled back out so we can see Max lift up the spyglass and then see Max turning with it and then cut right to the compound. Yes. 
Okay, second issue with this moment. That was number one. This is number two. My visualization of the landscape. Now, I admitted a couple of minutes ago, well, a couple of days ago, that I don't really have a very good sense of the landscape for this type of terrain. So I'm definitely at a disadvantage. But from what I visualized, where he's at, he can't see the compound. Yeah, that's why he scrambled over the rocks to begin with. Right. He would have to scramble from in my head. He would have to scramble back over the rocks to his original position to see the compound. And even when he sees the compound... And he kind of looks a little beyond the compound a little bit. And then we cut back to looking at him. I swear he's looking straight into the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely get that sense. <laughs> so I don't think I'm the only one that is having a hard time visualizing the landscape. Yeah. I think Max is having a hard time visualizing the landscape. I just, with all of this talk of Max spinning around with a spyglass held to his face. I imagine a scene where instead of him turning to his right, he turns to his left and the gyro captain has it's to like duck. right there. Oh, that would have been fine. In order to avoid having the spyglass smack him in the face. Yes. And so we could have had a nice little bit of physicality there. Yes. Those two, they make a good team. As much as Max hates that idea. Yeah. Like, they play off each other really well to comic effect yeah and it's subdued comic effect because this is very serious time they're watching a very very serious scene down below but the comic elements are still there yeah so that would have been a nice addition yeah oh something that just popped into my head when he's doing the scanning thing that i hate it's very reminiscent of star wars when luke is scanning the horizon with his binocular thingies and he's looking for sand people yes and then one pops up right in front of his yes his binoculars yeah that's yeah. a great scene so that that kind of is what it reminded me of oh my gosh i just had a thought <laughs> of how crazy it would be if you had max and the gyro captain and they're up at the top of the ridge and max is looking through his binoculars and all of a sudden like the view of the binoculars gets obscured and there's a raider like right there, right there. and max and the gyro captain like have to like fight him <laughs> that but, would be pretty great but yeah in looking around it's obvious to me that max is checking to see if there are any raider parties that are still hanging around the compound because i think max has had a plan formulating in his head for the last entire day that they've yeah. been sitting there watching the compound and i think he's starting to see that now is about the time for him to put that plan into action and he wants to make sure that there's not any raiders left over yeah he wants to make sure that they've all been led away by the scouts not that the scouts were part of his plan Plan. I think they're just a convenient thing that happened to him. I'm really glad that you said that because it's very pragmatic. And that's that's you. That's your personality. You see the logic in things. It's similar to Max. I wanted to attach my own emotional state to Max. I wanted him to be upset by the scene below. And yeah. I wanted him to go down there to exact vengeance. Because that's what I would have liked to do. If I were in his position, that's what I would want to do. That's not Max. Not anymore. No. He he did that. He exacted vengeance 
Yeah. When he when really, really bad things happen to people he loved. But that's not him anymore. He is pragmatic. He is a survivalist. And he has had a plan this whole time. He's had a plan formulating and solidifying. And he's doing this check to see, okay, what's the landscape look like? And then he's going to take the next step in his plan. Yeah. And I... When I say plan, I don't want to say that he was formulating this idea that people were going to leave the compound and he was going to save that person and use the idea of saving them as a bartering chip. I feel like he's also kind of improvising as he goes along here. Yes. But he sees an opening, and I think him scanning the horizon, checking the compound, and looking at the road beyond the compound is just him essentially double-checking to see if this idea in his head would even be viable. But it's after Max drops the spyglass from his face and hands it back to the gyro captain that he starts scrambling up the ridge again. And behind them is the black-on-black that he's had covered up with some sort of camo tarp. It's a pretty standard form of camo netting. You can buy it at pretty much any outdoor sporting goods store. I gotta say, I didn't notice the car there (laughs) until he pulled the camo (laughs) netting off of it. So it was very effective. (laughs) If I had, I mean, even... If I had just looked at it, it's shaped like a car. Mm -hmm. Like, if you look at it, you're going to know what it is. It's not hidden. It's just, it didn't stand out. It didn't draw my attention. It's that classic George Miller attention direction. Yes. You didn't see it because George Miller had your focus elsewhere in the frame. Yes. And he didn't draw your attention to it until he needed you to focus on it. Yes. Max goes over to his car and he starts pulling that netting off. Meanwhile, we go back to the view from the spyglass. The gyro captain has the telescope. He's looking back through it. And we catch up with our rapist and Kathleen, who looks mostly dead at this point. Yeah. I don't want to retread too much much of what we were saying yesterday, but it's this shot specifically as we are looking. We start with the raider on top of Kathleen, and then we kind of pan over and we see Nathan sitting pinned to the crossbow tire. And the raider specifically, he seems very animalistic. He doesn't really seem human at this point because he's just kind of draped over her mm-hmm. with his head buried in her neck. And it actually kind of reminds me of when Dog had his face buried in the dog food can, just hunched over, very intent on what he was doing. Just not human is the the sense that I get from looking at this arrangement of people. Yes. And thinking about that comparison with the dog eating the dog food, the quality of the dog food does not matter to the dog. He's just filling a basic need. And the rapist is doing the same thing. He doesn't care about this woman. He is just filling his own basic need, not for sexual pleasure, like we've discussed before, retreading, but for exerting his power. Okay. It really does not matter to him who this person is. It's just somebody that he can overpower. Yeah. And that is very animalistic. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of animals that, especially like when you go camping, they're like, you know, watch out for bears, put your food away at night because they don't care what they eat. They just eat food. Yeah. It barely has to be food. Wild animals will find it and eat it because yeah. that's what they do. <laughs> They eat food. As the gyro captain is looking through his spyglass at what survivors there are, which they're still technically both alive. So Yeah, at that point, they are both still alive. We are at currently 100% survival rate for these scouts, Mm -hmm. for this scout team specifically. But 
the gyro captain, all of a sudden, he hears a rumble behind him, and it's the roar of the black-on-black's engine. Max has started up his car, and in the last five, six seconds of this minute, Max pulls away in the black-on-black, leaving the gyro captain there on top of the hill. Max is making a move. We are finally leaving the top of this hill. Yes. How many minutes has it been? It's been a while. I think it might be eight minutes that we've spent up on this hill. We arrived at the top of the hill. I think minute 16? I think minute 15. Minute 15. I think it was. All right. And it's now minute 23. (laughs) So, yeah, about eight minutes. Almost a full two weeks. Yes. Yeah, we're finally moving on. Yep. So that's kind of nice. And the last we see of the gyro captain for the time being, he looks so sad. Yeah, he's, I think, rather surprised that Max is just up and leaving him. Yeah. I think the gyro captain is reeling from what he has witnessed Mm -hmm. down on the ground. And he seems... I don't know, maybe this is just from his dress, because he's, he's dressed in this bright yellow with pink shoes. He's got the purple scarf on, and this big flower on his jacket, and this comically large telescope. He seems like a jovial sort. And witnessing this horrendous act, I think, brings him down a couple of notches. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll definitely have time to talk more about the gyro captain tomorrow. Actually, tomorrow is going to be our last chance to talk about the gyro captain for about a month. So okay, as we move on from today to tomorrow, assemble any last minute things you want to mention about him because he's going to be gone for, for quite a while. But we'll get to that tomorrow when we get to it. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 23 of The Road Warrior. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.